Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. In this episode, evidence of whole genome duplication in the last common ancestor of the horseshoe crabs and two exciting new roles for microRNAs in genomic conflicts. I'm Jeff Marsh. An organism's genes are tightly controlled to express the right amount of product at the right time. One key set of regulators are the microRNAs. These small non-coding molecules are well recognised for their role in regulating gene expression, mainly through silencing. But research into their role as fine-tuners of the genome is currently proceeding at an astonishing rate, in part due to the molecular tools scientists have at their disposal to study their function. Tracy Chapman from the School of Biological Sciences at the University of East Anglia and her team work on microRNAs in Drosophila and their role during reproduction. And they've written a review this month suggesting two exciting new roles for microRNAs as guards and messengers of the genome. Here she is. Small RNAs are a rapidly expanding family that are of great interest because of their roles in gene regulation, the ways in which genes are turned on and off. And the more that they are studied, the more exciting they become. They regulate the expression of at least a third of the genes and maybe many more. So they're enormously important in directing how many, many fundamental processes of how organisms work. And you were specifically looking at the micro RNAs in this review. Does that just denote their size? Yes, they are a really well-studied group of RNAs from 21 nucleotides long They regulate the expression of many genes in plants. They appear to catalyze the destruction of particular messenger RNAs in animals. They regulate or they block particular RNAs being turned into proteins. So they have very important roles. How do they actually impact on transcription dynamics? So microRNAs, they contain a small targeting sequence which will seek out and target a particular messenger RNA and either target it for destruction or block its activity. And so many genes in the genome have these so-called targets and microRNAs will have some specificity and target those particular molecules and, as I say, regulate them. So either turn those genes effectively on or off or, or regulate the amount of messenger RNA that there is so these are kind of key roles, really. And so we have this growing body of literature um, which alludes to this turning on and off of transcription of genes, but you've written a review this month about two new functions of microRNAs which add an, a new layer of complexity to how microRNAs are, affect gene expression. That's right. We have been interested for a long time in a slightly different area of biology. We've been interested in the interactions between males and females at mating, using primarily fruit fly model systems to study that. And what we have discovered is that there are many, many changes in gene expression following mating. And so we studied the expression of a particular group of microRNAs 
that were changed in females in response to mating and in a previous study we had manipulated each of those independently to look at what their effects were. And we discovered some interesting phenomena to us which suggested potential new functions of microRNAs which um, complemented really a, a whole sort of burgeoning suite of functions and effects of microRNAs that was around in the literature at the time. So we, we were trying to bring all of this together, partly coming from discoveries that we had made, but also trying to bring together some disparate sources of information. Why would uh, the interaction between a male and a female cause perturbations to the gene expression in the female? And is that a bad thing? It's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, there are many events that need to be carefully orchestrated in females following mating. So reproductive processes have to be activated and in the right order for all a complicated series of events to occur. And so we expect lots of changes in the expression of genes that control those processes. And any time when we have changes in gene expression, we expect those to be regulated. And so in a way, we anticipated that microRNAs might be involved in that I guess what was the interesting part for us was that when we took away the expression of some of those microRNAs, what happened is that females appeared to be showing what we called an unbuffered phenotype. So there was some loss of, of regulation of the process in a way that was potentially harmful to females, which um, had sort of dysregulated their reproductive processes. And that's where we became interested in the functions of the small RNAs as actually somehow guarding so um, dampening this unregulated gene expression, which was potentially harmful to females. Right. So this is one of the new roles of microRNAs that you talk about in this review, microguarding. And that is, in a nutshell, yes, buffering against these wild oscillations in transcription dynamics. Yes, that's right. And it kind of fitted with the idea that there's a very nice study um, from the team of Linatal, which was published in, in Nature, which showed the role of microRNAs in buffering oscillations during development in C. elegans. So they have very good evidence for that kind of process in a different system. What we see at the moment is we don't know whether we have those underlying oscillations. All we know is that if we take these microRNAs away in females, we get this so-called unbuffered phenotype. Right. And a, a comparable situation which you write about in the review as well when gene expression can be perturbed is, is during infection when some sort of pathogen gets into a host and, and that sets off a whole set of changes to gene expression. Yes, that's right. And really the aim of this review was to try to suggest the microguarding as a new and potential mechanism for uh, the regulation of gene expression variation in not only our context, but a bunch of other different contexts. And so, I mean, I think it's worth emphasizing that this is, at the moment, uh, you know, a hypothesis with some supporting evidence um, from the different sources that, that we've mentioned. And it will be interesting to see, uh, you know, how well it holds up and whether there are more examples, as I suspect there probably will be, as people investigate um, this phenomenon more. So that's microguarding, this phenomenon of buffering against these gene expression oscillations. The other new role that you talked about in your review is that of micro-messengers, and that's these microRNAs being sent out in these extracellular vesicles to target cells. How does this work? This is very interesting and I think is going to be a huge topic of study in the future because it is being discovered that all sorts of extracellular fluids, for example, breast milk, plasma, semen, contain lots of tiny vesicles um, which contain RNAs of various sorts, including microRNAs. And I guess the important thing is, you know, it's not enough to show that there are vesicles floating around 
that have RNAs in them. What would be the exciting part of this is if particular cells can release particular kinds of microRNAs into these small vesicles and deliver them to particular places where they then interact with specific target cells. So whether this is kind of meaningful communication rather than vesicles just sort of floating around. You know, in a way, I don't know why it should seem more exciting than a hormone traveling from one place to another, you know, which has a specific and very dramatic effect, obviously, sometimes on targets. But somehow, the mechanics involved of uh, microRNAs actually moving and interfering with the transcription of target genes in this way seems kind of ignominiously exciting and somehow novel to me. It seems a bit more exciting to me maybe because a a hormone can sort of vary in concentration and that's about it, whereas a microRNA could just be one of any million forms. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's the potential for much more specificity there, which I think is really interesting. Also, there's the potential for um, transfer of information in this way between species. So there's one or two studies that have looked at in, infection and have looked at the movement of messenger RNAs from the infective body, the infective organism, and uh, detecting them in the host too. So I think that's interesting, even if you could have you know, the transfer of information across species in this way. Well, this is where it gets really interesting when we start talking about the sort of evolutionary dynamics behind this, because those two new roles that we've mentioned, micro-guarding and micro-messaging, you mentioned in the review that they are often at odds with one another and cause tension between uh, the, the evolutionary interests of two sort of genetically different entities like a male and a female or different species or pathogen and host. Yeah, so the context in which we come to study microguarding and micromessaging is from our interest in the interactions between males and females. And what we see is that rather than there being cooperation between males and females over mating, how often to mate, who to mate with, there are often tensions there, evolutionary tensions and conflicts. And so there's some kind of uneasy alliance often. Obviously, males and females have to cooperate to the extent that they want reproduction to work, but in systems whereby the individuals will go off and mate with other partners later, there are tensions about how much to invest at the moment, how many offspring to produce, how frequently to produce them, how often to mate. So it's those kinds of tensions that we were studying. And and what we are proposing in this review is that we've got evidence for a novel mechanism for the expression of this kind of conflict through microguarding and through micro-messaging. And the connection that we made between these two different processes came from at least one of the microRNAs that we were studying. So one of the um, microRNAs which is expressed in females following mating, when you silence that, when you take that away, you get an unbuffered phenotype. You get a female that potentially expresses more reproductive costs, is, is, is more likely to be damaged or have her long-term interest damaged by reproduction. And what we discovered in males is that this same microRNA is one which is made in cells of the male reproductive system, um, which can themselves detach. And Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. 
They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Then be transferred across two females during mating. So you have, on the one hand, microRNAs playing a buffering role in females, but on the other hand, the potential for those same microRNAs to be the instigator of conflicts. And you hypothesize that these conflicts might actually drive evolutionary change. Yes. So there's been a lot of evidence to show that reproductive genes, genes that are involved in these tensions between males and females, some of them evolve extremely rapidly. And the idea is that um, these evolutionary tensions can act as quite an engine for evolutionary change because there is a potential manipulation of one party um, and then there's the evolution of resistance against being manipulated. And it would be interesting, I mean, part of our hypothesis is that um, this sort of micro-guarding and micro-messaging is potentially two flip sides of the same coin. So you've got you know, manipulation and anti-manipulation um, going around in, in an evolutionary to and fro and actually driving a lot of evolutionary change in these molecules. And we've mentioned the interaction between males and females and, and certainly pathogens and hosts. Um, so let's just have a look at this conflict sort of hypothesis between these two roles. With regards to cancer, how might micro-messengers and micro-guards have a role to play in how cancer plays out? I think it's a very interesting prospect, the study of micro-guards and micro-messages in the study of cancer biology. In fact, a lot of the study of vesicles and the movement of microRNAs and other small RNAs has come from studies of cancer cells. And one interesting observation is that um, cancer cells, some populations of cancer cells in vitro will export high levels of microRNAs acting on cells around them. And the idea, one idea is that this is to promote a tumorigenic environment. So this would be the the cancer trying to manipulate its own environment around it in a way that is favorable to that cancer. Um, So that's a very interesting um, possibility, you know, and opens up possibilities to try to target, so to prevent the export of those small RNAs. Um, So there are even sort of potentials for treatments uh, for new therapies there, I think. And so we've seen some fascinating results so far, but they're still relatively scant at the moment. How would you like to see the field progress and how how do you suggest that we sort of test the validity of these hypotheses surrounding microRNAs, new roles? Well, I think on the microguarding side, I think what we need are more tests of the consequences of silencing small RNAs. And that work is being made possible because people are working out ever more efficient and more clean ways to simply ask the question, you know, what is the role of this microRNA? What happens when I silence it? What happens when I take it away? And I think in the studies that we've been doing in the fly, the nice thing there is that you can look in terms of the whole organism. That's also very important. You know, you want to look at the sum total of all of these effects. 
on the um, animal itself. That's quite powerful, I think. And on the micro-messaging side, I think what is needed is the complete line of really good evidence in the in vivo situation, so in the animals, of cells releasing specific small molecules and targeting particular cells and having measurable consequences, again, at the whole organism level. And then if we have those sorts of pieces of information, basically connecting together all the dots, then I think we will really be in a very exciting place. Tracy Chapman there. And we'll stay on the theme of grand genomic discoveries for our next story. Whole genome duplication, where the entire content of the genome gets doubled, is thought to have occurred before the last common ancestor of the vertebrates and is touted to be responsible for their incredible morphological diversity. Outside of the vertebrates, the only animals thought to have undergone whole genome duplication are the asexual deloid rotifers. So it came as a bit of a surprise to Jerome Hoy at the Chinese University of Hong Kong when his student discovered evidence for whole genome duplication in the horseshoe crab. Horseshoe crabs fit into a subphylum of the arthropods called the chelicerates, which also includes spiders, scorpions, mites and ticks. And these marine animals are famous for having looked very similar for the last 400 million years. So if there was a whole genome duplication in the common ancestor of the four living species of horseshoe crabs, as Jerome's work seems to suggest, why has this not led to a similar diversification of form like we see in the vertebrates? I called Jerome to find out. So what people previously found is that in the last common ancestor of vertebrates, they have already gone through two rounds of whole genome duplication. So that's why in human, we have multiple copy genes comparing to, for example, in vertebrates. So what we've been thinking for many years is that invertebrates generally do not have whole genome duplication until quite recently. I mean, there are some evidence showing that it can be actually happening in invertebrates, for example, in rotifers and in our case, in the horseshoe crabs. And when people are looking for evidence of whole genome duplication, you generally tend to look in these highly conserved family of genes called the homeobox genes. What are those? Homeobox genes are transcription factors. So one gene can turn on many different genes as well. So many people, when they're trying to study whole genome duplication, they use homeobox genes because they're so conserved. They have very, very important developmental functions. For example, the Hox genes, they control the anterior to posterior axis formation, which means they're controlling the head to the tail formation. What was it that made you think that you would find evidence of whole genome duplication in the invertebrates? And, and where specifically were you looking? It's quite a funny story. I mean, one of the major focus of our lab is to try to understand animal evolution. Arthropods is one of the focus as well. So I have a final year undergraduate student trying to understand some homeopathic genes in horseshoe crab. One day he came to me and said, oh, something wrong, there seems to be something wrong. He found multiple copies. That's why we say, okay, let's try next generation sequencing and, and get a genome and transcriptome. Horseshoe crab used to be, I mean, as you know, in the fossil record, they used to be dominant and there are many different species, and there are only four extant species in the world right now. Hong Kong, we actually contain two species of horseshoe crab that we're able to farm. And then we try to do PCR at the beginning and find all oh, multiple homeopathic genes. Of course, we also do another one from the American one, and we found, ah, all of them have this kind of multiple copies genes, so we come to the conclusion that there should be ancestral whole genome duplication in the horseshoe crabs. And finding evidence of duplicates of particular homeobox genes or Hox genes doesn't necessarily imply that there's been a whole genome duplication. Yes, I mean, there are, there are cases to which 
single or, or some members of the homeobos genes that can get duplicate, which is true that we can find in animal genomes. But what in this case that we are showing is not only the homeobos genes, as the referee of, of your journal has asked. I mean, so we have also looked into other gene of family, for example, hormonal genes. I mean, so we also find there are multiple copies of such. So it seems to be all the investigated genes that we've been looking, they've all gone duplicated. So um, taking a look at the most parsimonious explanation, it seems to be a whole genome duplication, rather than many different sides of the genome. They just suddenly duplicate. So that must have been a pretty huge surprise then as a, as a taxonomist. Yes, indeed. People have been saying that whole genome duplication has been a major force for vertebrate innovations about then morphological novelties. What we have been comparing, and people have been seeing that from the morphological status, from the fossil record to the extant species that we are having right now for the horseshoe crabs, it seems to be more or less very, very similar. So in a way, this also shows that, I mean, whole genome duplication does not necessarily reflect their morphological complexity, no matter what, what people call complexity are. Were you able to pinpoint exactly when this whole genome duplication occurred in the lineage leading up to the horseshoe crabs? Well, I mean, what we have been doing, in, in addition to just sequencing the genome and transcriptum of the three species of horseshoe crabs out of the four extant species, Fortunately, there are also other calicerate genomes, like from the tags and mice, spiders, that have been coming out from other projects that are available. So we compare the homeobos genes in the horseshoe crabs to also the situations in other calicerates. There are some copies in other calicerates, but they do not actually group well in the phylogenetic analysis. So we pinpoint that a shared common ancestral whole genome duplication that happened only in at the base, at the ancestor for the horseshoe crabs. Whole genome duplication in the vertebrates has been held responsible for, you know, the vast diversity in form. And now that we've found whole genome duplication occurring in the horseshoe crabs that are famed for looking the same for 400 million years, does that tell us anything about what role whole genome duplication plays in animal evolution? Because it seems to be doing the complete opposite. I understand. So one thing that we are thinking right now is that whole genome duplication previously have been a very, very good correlation between the morphological novelties or the vast amount of diversity that we are seeing, but not in the case of horseshoe crab as we have shown. But we shouldn't be biased towards the morphologies. How about the intrinsic genetic mechanism Maybe morphological innovations and this kind of diversities is a byproduct. What is actually happening first right at the beginning is the genetic diversity that gives rise for other mechanisms, which is something that should be done in the future. That was Jerome Hoy. And that's it from us this month. Tune in again next time for a fresh edition of the Heredity Podcast. I'm Jeff Marsh, or as Twitter knows me, at Jeffrey London. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 